This is an ABC podcast. Shanghai is one of the world's most gigantic cities. But in Hongzhou Bay, along the city's coast, there is an island. It's a long, wide mudflat and surrounded by fishing boats where thousands and thousands of birds arrive every year. Among these birds is a small dovish bird called a grey plover. And these grey plovers have come all the way from the Gulf of St Vincent, just north of Adelaide. They've flown 7,000 kilometres non-stop. And after their stopover in China, they head north to breed. And they go all the way up to the Arctic Circle. But for years, no one knew exactly where. Andrew Darby is a writer who came to love these unassuming little birds. And he decided to trace their flight from the bottom of the world to the very top. But halfway through his journey, Andrew began to fear for his own survival. Andrew Darby has written an absolutely beautiful book about all this, and it's called Flight Lines. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Glad to be here, Richard. I was talking about the plovers with my daughter. I said, I'm going to be talking to this guy about plovers. She went, oh, plovers. God. Yeah, the, the ones that attack us in the playground at school. And but these aren't the plovers we're talking about, are we? Let's tease that out straight away. <laughs> so, Just confront this head on, shall yes, we? Shall we do that? <laughs> yes, let's do that. So what your daughter is talking about and what many people know as that bloody plover, plover is, in fact, a masked lapwing. Lapwings are allied, but different from these birds that we're talking about. The plovers I'm talking about are the birds of the tidal flats. This bird, the grey plover, is known as Pluvière Argente in France. That's the silver plover. It's known as Wapuska apeth ishish in far north of North America. That's the white bear bird, the bird that is associated with the polar bear. It's known as Tudeli Uri to the Inuit of the Alaskan coast. Um, it's known as the black-bellied plover to the North American people generally. Um, and to us, it's very little known. What is this bird? Is re- it was really a fascinating thing for me to be studying. How can they all be the same bird? One, one, one is called the grey plover, and, and elsewhere it's the silver plover, and then it's the black-bellied plover. Do they change their plumage? As they Absolutely, they do. Absolutely, they do. Um, We see them in usually a very unassuming uh, dovish grey, white speckles, those sorts of things, uh, features on it. And uh, it changes plumage as it moves north in the final stages of its migration to the Arctic breeding ground. The birds that we see are all Arctic-born. They're all Arctic-born. They need to go back there to breed again. But the distinguishing thing that Anybody who knows a bit about birds and a bit about migratory shorebirds can find with the grey plover is that when it flies, it flashes black wing pits. All the, a lot of the other shorebirds, similar sizes, they all look silvery grey down here, pretty hard to distinguish. But if you've got your black wing pits showing in your picture, you've got a grey plover. Given that they fly these vast distances, do they have an enormous wingspan? No. They don't. Their wingspan would be something similar to a small hawk's. Um, It's big, uh, it's long for a bird that size. It's sharply pointed because in ultramarathon flight, these birds have to roll the wings, the wind out at the edges of of their wings the way that an aeroplane does. Um, but it's it's not a large bird. So it's not a big sense. gliding bird. It's, it's nothing like an albatross. Then, in other words, absolutely so, not. So, so it's so. Does that mean? Does that mean if it's flying these vast distances, it's flapping a lot of the way rather than gliding? Is that what it means? That is the key to the astonishing nature and ability of these ultra ultra marathon migratory shorebirds. They flap. They don't soar over the ocean. They don't use um, landing spots along the way like. Uh, land birds would uh, to rest. They just fly. That uh, that first seven thousand kilometre flight that you described from Gulf St Vincent was a non-stop flight, day and night, non-stop. No feeding, um, no drinking. Uh, they choose. They have to choose the absolutely best spot in the atmosphere to travel, the best height um, for the uh, for the ability that's going to 
to make their journey easier. They have to find the winds and use the winds to do that. They have extraordinary abilities. And, you know, um, I think probably if you don't get excited by that sort of thing, then you probably haven't got a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, these things don't have uh, Google Maps. They don't have, they don't have a, 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 any way. Well, how do they navigate? How do they find their way all the way from the Gulf of St. Vincent in South Australia to Hangzhou Bay and then up to the Arctic Circle? How do they, why, 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 why don't they get blown off course and end up in India or somewhere like that? Okay, well, not everything is easy for them and that can happen. But the reason that most of them make it or enough of them make it for the line to continue, is several fold. They have at their hand at at, at their hands. They have tools like um, the Earth's magnetic field lines. How do they How do they register that? Okay, so you've got to um, you've got to walk through a bit of a window of belief here um, to 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 accept magnetic field lines because we can't see them. We don't with our vision see magnetic field lines on the Earth, but we know they're there because compasses point north. And so magnetic field lines can uh, can be seen by migratory birds probably through um, actually looking at, at something like a heads-up display that a fighter pilot might get in front of his eyes. What? Really? Seeing... They, they can see like strands of magnetic lines, you mean? No, so they... they probably see that an image grows... Uh, fainter or denser, fainter or denser, or, oh. or, or sorry, fainter or stronger. Fainter so they, so or they stronger. see a corridor then through their eyes of a kind thing. Yes, they'll see a corridor exactly. That's that's and so magnetic field lines are important in that. And the ability to use magnetic field lines has been demonstrated again and again in bird species. And the Wilchkos, the German researchers who have done most work on this, they, they say, well, we only need to do it again and again and again because people won't believe that what the human can't see, a bird might be able to. So that's, that's, the, that's the, one of their primary tools. That's not so preposterous. I mean, dogs, we know, uh, can scent all kinds of things. Exactly. Uh, other creatures with, with more complicated um, uh, sensory systems can see different colours on the spectrum to us. I yes. mean, we, 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 we don't do too badly, but there are other creatures who can perceive all sorts of things that we can't perceive that's in right. this world. And that's the, and true. And the plovers, great plovers are, are among those creatures. That's absolutely. They also use some the stars at night. Um, they have the ability to navigate th through the stars. They probably don't use the moon. Um, there's little evidence that uh, that has an effect on their choices of when they go. Um, they obviously are able to look at the landscape unfurling beneath them during daylight and they return again and again to the same place. Um, and so they recognise where they need to go to get to that place. But these birds are flying, you know, could be 3,000 metres up. Though some of them, some of migratory shorebirds fly at a height that would trigger an oxygen mask if we were in an aircraft, you know, that's so thin up there. But they are able to use those air, those air, air currents. They choose favourable winds to depart. Um, and, yeah, sometimes they get blown off course. Since they are so unassuming, given that they don't draw a huge amount of attention to themselves, what, what got you? What, how did they catch your eye? Well, you know, um, I think in life there is much to be found in the overlooked. Um, I think that, you know, if you have a look at um, things that might be just those grey birds out on the mud there and you think about actually how they got to where they were. Not many people look at those grey birds and think about their origins in the Arctic, that these are all tundra-born birds that are making the journey to Australia and other places in the Southern Hemisphere again and again, um, making that return journey. Uh, they've chosen a really, what seems to us, a really arduous way to live. But, you know, they might be looking up at us and saying, well, those people were here last time. Haven't they moved on? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know when, the photos you have of them, uh, I think if I'd seen them at a distance, I, I wouldn't notice them at all. Not, not one bit, but up close. Mm. 
I have to say they're adorable. They, they're really very, very pretty birds. They're, they're mm. just lovely to look at. And I, I just wonder if they're a bit, you know, there's, there's, you know in life you, you, there are those people you know and, and, and you sort of don't pay much attention. And then sometimes you just catch them and you, and you go, oh, my God, you're actually an extremely beautiful human being. Uh, it's, mm. it's a bit like that with these birds, isn't it? Uh, absolutely it is, yes. It's, that's, there's no question. Uh, we don't often get the chance to be up close with these birds. I was very fortunate to be able to be up close with some of them. Um, and yes, they they have very delicate features. They have um, extraordinarily aerodynamic bodies. Um, they're really equipped for the task, well equipped for the task. I'm just going to quote you here. You say, I had seen a small flock that scattered like storm-blown leaves and countless numbers on China's coast of the Yellow Sea. I came to hold near my heart an unassuming and watchful bird, capable of stout nest defence and extraordinary feats of endurance. So these are quite heroic creatures to you. Well, to me, um, I think they're really worthwhile um, things to study, to, to, to hold in the heart. I think that, you know, uh, the natural world has so much uh, of a treasure house for us to, in, in, to, un, to enrich ourselves. Uh, and for me, um, the grey bird... Uh, particularly, I, I resonated with me. The more I uh, spent time looking at it, the more surprised I was at um, really qualities that we as people find exemplary. You know. What do they symbolise for you? Is it a kind of connectedness? I think so, yes. I think um, for me, the connectedness is a much wider lesson these birds i have a background as an environmental journalist i've and i've studied and i've spent a lot of time um looking at the antarctic and so increasingly i'm also looking at the arctic and so that was one thread that sort of drew me to these birds that they're the they could exemplify our connectedness that you know the tundra birds are our birds that it is one planet that we are on a tiny blue dot, um, that we're all in this together, whether we're plovers or people. Uh, and I think that uh, that sort of connectedness is so valuable. Yeah. I like the way they spend time at the top of the planet and the bottom of the planet. They go from the most remote part of the world, the most depopulated part of the world, very possibly, to the biggest city in the world mm. uh, and, and everything in between. There's something that contains the whole of the world in all of that, I suppose. Uh, very much there is. I think you put your finger on it. I, you know, for me, uh, we are only going to benefit as people by getting a better appreciation of these sorts of creatures, of the, the things that they can do. So then there was the mystery of where they go. Where do they go once mm. they leave China and yeah. they head somewhere up into the Arctic Circle? Mm. Tell me about the researchers you met in South Australia. Yeah, well, the researchers, I probably should just take a, a slight step back. The researchers have been working on understanding the roots of these birds for a very long time, uh, decades and decades. There's a Victorian group, the Victorian Way to Study group, and their doyen was Clive Minton, who really began the work in Australia. But there are there are others. Are these like citizen scientists? They're absolutely they? citizen scientists. Right. Absolutely, some of them um, may be scientists of another kind. Um, uh, Clive uh, was a metallurgist, but uh, overall, they are citizen scientists who spend their days gathering pinpoint data that can be put together for a bigger picture. For the love of it. Yeah, for the love of it. So um, what were they trying to do with the grey plover? Okay, so in, in South Australia, uh, they had the opportunity to fit satellite tags to these birds. So you, this, this is about, uh, the tag is about the size of uh, a thumbnail. Uh, it has a wisp of an aerial out the back. It has a leg loop harness. So the bird, the the tag is harnessed to the bird around its legs. Um, and they had the opportunity to do this to, um, to, to about 10 birds, but there were two in particular that proved extraordinarily successful. Um, and, you know, that... Uh, the the catching of those birds was was vitally important. How did they catch the birds anyway? Well, this is um, I can I can only liken it to an ambush. You know, it's actually <laughs> sort of 
almost a military operation. Really? Right. If it's to be successful, it, it has to be uh, precisely calculated. They use um, cannon nets. So you set up um, three cannon tubes in the sand uh, with projectiles in them, heavy steel projectiles that are tied onto a net. And the idea is that the net is camouflaged, it's put in a particular position, um, and then the birds are twinkled, they are drawn in to that area, just gently pushed from each side until you have the birds in the right position. So you have the optimum safety of not killing the bird, but catching the bird. And is there a three, two, one fire and all that with the cannons? Absolutely, there three, is? two, one right. fire. Um, a, um, um, radio um, connection between the group that are doing the work, uh, an order to fire, and then a pell-mell run down to the net by the uh, by anybody who can who can handily help to make sure that the birds are safely held, that they're not uh, going to be drowning in water or anything like that as the, because it happens on high tide. You have to do it when the birds are bunched up on high tide. Um, you have so many precautions have to be taken before you actually extract the birds from, from the net. And watching those grey plovers come out of that net was just... Um, uh, just drew my heart so much because there's there these are tiny little feather scraps they're they're they look like a bunch of wet tissues you know little grand white wet, wet tissues just lying there under this heavy net having had cannons explode over them they have this amazement in their eyes it could only be amazement they have the deep dark soulful eye of the gray plover but it was wide it was just astonished. It was, what the... What has happened? And, and what is it like to hold one of these beautiful little birds? I can't tell you that. I was not licensed to hold it, so I could not hold it. You're not a licensed plover holder, sir? I am not a licensed plover holder. So, But I can tell you that um, the young woman who um, I spoke to about who was holding it, Amelia Lai, a Taiwanese researcher who came down to Gulf St. Vincent to help that she said its heart was racing but you can see um i have a picture of her holding it and she's not using force in her hand you can see there is no force in her hand she has it gently gripped the bird isn't struggling it's kind of appears to be accepting of its fate and sort of thing oh, what's next yeah mm. These two birds, these specific birds you were speaking of just then, the mm. ones that went on the amazing yeah. flights, what, mm. once they'd put the little bracelets, uh, anklets on their, uh, their legs and they took off, what was, it, what was the first flight, uh, first bird, CYA, that, as it was called? Tell me about that, where, where that bird went after it left the Gulf of St. Vincent. Sure. CYA um, took off, uh, you know, they're not very dramatic names, are they? With CYA no. and CYB, but that's what we're stuck with. That's what the people in South Australia called them, so that's what they are. And uh, CYA was first to take off, and she took off um, and uh, headed north over the deserts um, and was doing quite well, was quite on course, um, until a, a deep low spun out of the Gulf of Carpentaria and pushed her and whatever flock mates she had at the time um, way into um, the desert of Western Australia to the... To the, the Great Sandy Desert, right? Yes, there. the Great right. Sandy Desert, yeah. And so um, they corrected their course, the birds corrected their course, um, and so they flew this dog leg to get back on course and exit somewhere above the Ord River uh, over that sort of region. Right, and just then, above the Kimberley then, right, Going, yeah. leaving Australia at that point, right. Yeah, but not stopping, not saying, okay, here's another piece of coast, we could stop here, we could replenish, not stopping. So Seaway is still flapping on, flapping on. Flapping on, she's flapping on, she's flapped about a million times already and she's flapping on over the entirety of the Indonesian archipelago, um, past the Philippines, all the way up to the 
western coast of Taiwan, where she settles down in a, in a rice paddy field in the western coast of Taiwan. That's her initial flight. How about CYB? Where did CYB go? Well, CYB, to me, she always seemed to be just the slightly more experienced bird, just the slightly more seasoned bird. She waited another couple of weeks before leaving. Good chance to get a bit more fat on. She had a better tailwind when she left. Um, tailwind southeasterly coming up the Gulf. She, her flight took her pretty directly over Australia out to the west of Darwin and then again across the entirety of the in Indonesia and the Philippines to land on the southern Chinese coast. That was her initial stopping point before she went up to Hongzhou Bay. Uh, so, so the, and, and, and did they, the CYA and CYB, did they, they both ended up on that little mudflat island in, in Hangzhou Bay? Or, or just no. Right. They actually um, took separate courses through the same region and didn't meet up for quite a while. I'll tell you when they did meet up, but their initial course um, in up through the Yellow Sea, which is so critical to these birds, um, their initial course uh, was separate. They're so so having separated then at that point, at the halfway point where they stop to what feed up again, I'm sure, as mm. well, uh, they're yeah. closer to the equator, mm. uh, there was, like I said, the mystery of where they would go to breed, somewhere in the mm. Arctic Circle. Yeah. Where did CYA and CYB end up going? Where, where was this okay. Arctic breeding ground? Okay, well, th the... They left um, from different spots in the Yellow Sea, about 600 kilometres apart. They, they decided they each were each fattening up in different spots in the Yellow Sea that were about 600 kilometres apart. But they left probably within about a day of each other and flew separate courses um, far over uh, northern China, over Siberia, that entirety of that extraordinary taiga forest over the over the mountains of Siberia down to the Arctic plain and stopped at separate places on the Arctic plain on the coast, near the coast. And the people who were watching back in Australia, they thought, oh, this is it, this is going to be their breeding ground. But a wind came up, a helpful wind came up from the um, Siberian shores and these birds took off again, separately flying, separate courses to land on Wrangell Island, the, la the home of the last woolly mammoth, an extraordinary Arctic treasure house, natural treasure house. Where is Wrangell Island? Wrangell Island is far, it, it's in the Arctic Sea. You, you, there's no, further, no land further north to the pole. Wrangell Island is a um, world heritage uh, island of uh, magnificent wealth. And both these birds, after all that journey that they began separately, landed within a day of each other on Wrangell Island. And to my astonishment, you can look at the, you can find data on these things now. To my astonishment, that was also the day that the snow cover melted off Wrangell. So they had, cho they had arrived at absolutely the optimum day for them to begin the breeding process. Within a day of each other? Yes. Mm. What's on Wrangell Island? Tundra. Lots of tundra. So it's flat? Yes, yeah. And what animals live there? Uh, it's hilly. It's hilly. It's not right. flat, but it's tundra. They're tundra hills. There, uh -huh. is no, there is no tree vegetation or things like that. Um, it's best known as a bastion of the polar bear, the white bear. And uh, it was um, only um, John Muir, the great naturalist from North America, was among the part party to first um, record setting foot on Wrangell Island, although indigenous peoples of that area probably crossed the ice to it um, as a matter of course. Um, it's, it's a very remote place. It has very large populations of migratory birds breeding, as well as polar bears and foxes. So you set yourself the task of then the next year following the flight path of these birds. So I you did. would leave Australia, go to Hangzhou Bay, that mud flat where all the birds congregate. And from there, you were going to go to Wrangell Island. How on earth would you have gotten to Wrangell Island? 
Well, it took a while to look around and find it, but there is one um, adventure tourism vessel that visits Wrangell Island a couple of times each year. And I found it and I put a bid to them. I said, you know, if if I can um, defray the incredible expense by um, writing newspaper stories, would you give me a berth? And they said, sure, we'll give you a berth. Uh, it was a very exciting moment for me that I might actually get to step on the island where CYA and CYB had been. Just amazing. Mm. So the first stop for you was Hangzhou Bay to go to China and to stand on that mudflap island. Mm. What was it like to watch the birds all flying in? So watching large groups of migratory shorebirds come together, um, forced in by the rising tide, um, it, I, it's an encompassing experience. You have bird clouds swarming and floating, breaking apart and coming together again. Isn't it noisy and smelly and terrifying? Um, like, no, like none the Hitchcock of those. movie, you know? <laughs> none of no? those. It's more, uh, you, they're, they, they're not terribly noisy. They're, uh, migratory shorebirds tend to be quieter. They, you'll know a curlew call, that's a migratory shorebird. But sandpipers and so on, tiny. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So you were saying there you were on the mudflat island in, mm. in, uh, off the coast of Shanghai yeah. Uh, yeah. watching these, these mm. mammoth clouds of migratory birds mm. come in, including the clouds mm. of grey gray mm. plovers. And, and this was a, you said this was an all-encompassing experience. In what way? Well, so what you're seeing uh, in front of you to the, through the field of your vision, through the entire field of, of your vision, is these um, elastic, malleable um, organic flocks of birds melding and breaking apart, um, gathering and eventually settling on the on the mud in front of you. Um, while they're f- in the sky around you, th- the experience to me was like standing at the top of a waterfall. When you stand at the top of a waterfall, you get to breathe in extra oxygenated air. It's a slightly heady experience and having all this rustling and um, waving of wings, the air that came with that was like that. It was just sort of, you just sort of, oh, breathtaking. Truly, so, so you're being like actually fan, breathtaking. Like, truly yeah. breathtaking. You're being fanned by like uh, mm. thousands and thousands of individual yeah. little fans yes. from all over the body. And then, yes. it all, and then it all just settles, doesn't and it? And it settles, yes. It yes. settles on the, on the ground. Mm. So, so that's kind of, kind of thrilling while all that's, that's going on. Is it hard to glimpse your bird that you were looking for, the grey plover in, a, in that great big kind of gigantic rock concert of, uh, of birds that's, that's shown up? The black wing pits. Black wing pits. If you look for the black wing pits, you will see the grey plover. And you saw that? Did you yeah. do a little kind of war dance of joy or something when you saw your spot? I those? was so glad to see them. Uh, um, I, I kept saying, is that it? Is that it? Are they, uh, is that these birds? Yes, that, that was them. And they settled on the mud and did their own thing the way the grey plover do. They do their own thing. They don't necessarily, you know, race down to the um, edge of the tide line with the other birds, which are feverishly needling the mud to get the maximum benefit. Grey plover, a bit of a... You can start to see a bit of a similarity with the lapwing. They hang back. They have a look. They conserve their energy. And then they dive in and they pounce on something. That's the way, That's their preferred feeding method, run, stop, peck. How were you feeling at the time, health-wise? I was um, pretty good, but I had um, a back pain that I put down initially to travelling in buses in China. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it became... Um, more serious as time went on, um, and 
what happened was that when I got back from China, I uh, eventually, uh, at the urging of my wife Sally, I presented myself at um, the local hospital. I was cleared of any cardiac problems because the pain had grown to encircle my left side. Uh, but later follow-up tests found um, first a uh, uh, primary cancer at the top of my left lung and then um, a, a, a truly terrifying um, PET scan, positron emission tomography scan, uh, which is terrifying and wonderful, as you would expect. Um, uh, the uh, It showed... Um, large number of secondaries through my torso, I was sort of, I lit up. To me, it looked like some kind of spectral Christmas tree. It was, it was very, very scary. So riddled with cancer tumors. Yes. I was at stage four of lung cancer and there is no stage five. Yes. Well, so what was, was the prognosis at the time? Um, I was, I was told that there, I had uh, 12 to 18 months uh, and uh, I was also told by, you know, that physician who was a kindly physician that, you know, no one is a statistic. Uh, each one is an individual um, and you need to um, think of yourself like that. So it's funny, you know, um, information like that, I actually filtered out of my mind. Um, what do you mean? I, I just didn't think, okay, now I've got 12 to 18 months. I, I just, I thought, I've got today. I'll do what I can today. We'll move on today. We'll get on with things that we can get on with. And so what happened is that um, the extent of the cancer um, and the pain that it was rapidly increasing in me um, meant that I went through the stages of treatment, um, radiotherapy, to zap the um, big secondary eating into my spine, which was causing the chest pain, um, and chemotherapy um, to, you know, uh, push back the secondaries. Um, were, you in a lot of, were you in a lot of pain at the time? I was, yes, yes, I was. Um, but one, look, one of the things that I actually did on the advice of medical friends was... I went pretty much straight to palliative care. End-of-life care, you mean? Like, That's what right. they call it, end-of-life yeah. care. But actually, it's pain management care mm. as much as anything mm. else. And I found that when I went to palliative care, I opened up a, many doors of, of a kind help and assistance for me. And, and, and uh, the, the pain was managed really well. I, I, it might seem like a really stupid question, but were you, th were you still thinking of the birds while you were going through all of this? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Richard, um, Sally, um, you know, uh, the nights were very dark. Some nights were very dark and long. Um, and she said to me, just think about your birds. And so I, that's what I did. I would, um, I would repeat in as much detail as I possibly could, you know, the catching of the birds, the catching of the grey plover, the flights that they had taken, you know, their extraordinary survival, their ability to survive. Uh, that was just such a, um, a balm for me. It was... So I wasn't able to work on the book. You know, my head was too full of drugs to work on the book, too full of painkillers. Um, I had trouble forming coherent sentences sometimes. Um, but the, uh, the images of the birds and their capacity to endure, their capacity to survive was just, oh, it was just uh, uh, so important to me. So it wasn't so much the heroic achievement of the long distance fight it was the forbearance then the forbearance in the bird is that it or was it both i think it's probably both you know the the heroic achievement but just the evidence the um the plain fact that they are able to accomplish these things that this fantastic scientific research has shown that these birds are able to accomplish these things that that to me was really important you know so that boy, boy helped boy you up a bit, but um, wh why, why are you here? How are you still talking to me? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I am. Um, people look at me uh, with amazement when I say this, but I am lucky beyond belief. I am very fortunate. Um, I have um, been able to have immunotherapy, treatment with immunotherapy, which is a breakthrough treatment in cancer. Not all cancers, most cancers don't respond to immunotherapy yet. But um, the two doctors, two medical scientists who were most responsible for um, the development of immunotherapy won the Nobel Prize in, in 2018. Um, so this is very new therapy then? It is so? very new therapy. And, and you say it's immunotherapy. So, mm. so is this, does, does this involve harnessing the body's immune system? Because normally it ignores cancers, doesn't it? That's well, exactly. Yes, yes that's, that's, that's been the problem. Um, and uh, James Allison, the, the American who was one of the Nobel Prize winners, said, "Prize winners said, yeah, I mean, he said that this has always been the problem. You get um, because there's mutation, the cancer mutates. You get um, a relapse after remission, um, and that is such an enormous tragedy, and has been for such a long time. So but this, so this, what, so this therapy gets the immune system to see the cancer properly. Then is that what it is? Takes the blinders off. Right. Effectively, is the way that I think of it. Uh, that the immune system, um, according to Allison, Allison said that you know, um, given the opportunity, the immune system is more than a match for cancer. And so what these new class of drugs do, the immunotherapy drugs do, is they they can be directed at specific mutations. I have what's called a KRAS mutation. And KRAS, I am so fortunate that KRAS is one of the mutations that is attacked very successfully by immunotherapy. So how did you get it? What, injection? By, uh, I have an infusion. I, at infusion. the moment, I, I, I have, it takes two hours once a month to sit there while I have a drip. Can you feel yourself getting better as the cancers are being sort of what are dismantled or destroyed by, by, by this therapy? Over time, I have, be, I have felt that. Um, it is a bumpy road. This is a new process. Um, my oncologist, um, she is learning as as we go, as everybody is uh, about this. Um, and so, you know, I've had uh, appearance of second, reappearance of strong secondaries that have been beaten back again. Um, and at the moment, uh, I am um, not showing any active primary or any active secondaries. Um, and it's, for me, the price of it is um, a... Uh, monthly infusion for two hours. I feel pings. I feel spots in, in, in my body where I think the immunotherapy is still working, working away. Um, but that's as bad as it gets. You know, I am fortunate beyond belief. Like you say, most, the great majority of cancers cannot be treated with this therapy at this stage, nonetheless. Mm. Yeah. But nonetheless, does this mean you still, you're, you're able to lead what, a more or less normal life now? Yes, I am. After a terminal cancer's, cancer yes. prog prog uh, prognosis. Yes, yes, I, yes, I was. I am. I, you know, I'm, I still have cancer, but I am leading a managed life, normal life, and I was able to continue on the journey to follow the birds to do that. What's the hope with this therapy down the track as it gets better, as, as more results and more, uh, more uh, results come in from uh, treating patients like you? Well, we really do need to underscore that it's a hope. Um, but uh, Kazuo Hondo, who was the Japanese joint winner of the Nobel Prize, um, said in his opinion that um, within a decade, a couple of decades, cancer would be able to be seen as fundamentally for mostly a managed disease. Well, like HIV has become... For, for me absolutely people. you know i mean the road to um the road to managed management for hiv patients has been very long um very hard but um we i have uh two really good friends who were positive in the uh early 80s are with us today and have lived with it um and have wonderful worthwhile lives today as a result of it 
I can't imagine what it's like to get a reprieve like that. So you've got to get the reprieve you've had. You yes. say you feel lucky. Is that, is that is that all, or do you feel something else? What do you, what else? Oh, what else I, is I there? certainly feel an obligation. What, what's the yeah. obligation? Well, initially it was the obligation to finish the book. You know, it was the obligation because um, to me there are linkages there. We've got these um, researchers who gather pinpoint data on these birds to unravel where they're going to explain that bit of our world to us. <clears throat> and you have the pinpoint research that every cancer patient represents. Every single cancer patient represents a data point as well as the sum of the love and the hopes of the people around them and of themselves. They are a data point that will help treatment as down the track. And I am living evidence of that. So you were making plans to go to Wrangell Island in the Arctic Sea, this place where the last woolly mammoths used to live, the, the bastion of the polar bear and, the, and musk oxes as well and probably wolves, yes, I'm guessing, and, yes. all the, and of course the, the grey plovers where they, yes. they go to nest and breed. And that was suddenly thrown right off course by you coming to terms with this, this prognosis and the, and the therapy and the like. Did you get to see these birds in their breeding grounds? Oh, such a... A heartful moment that was such a heartful moment. What I did was I had a look at um, going to Wrangell again and spoke to the tour company. But um, on the trip that I would have gone on, they saw two hundred polar bears in one spot, and the news of that spread around the world, and bookings for births totally disappeared. <laughs> so I began what to make a gutless wonders. Honestly, really. <laughs> <laughs> so 200 I, polar bears, that's nothing, surely. Yes. So I be, Sorry. It's all right. It's okay. So I began uh. to look um, <laughs> wide, uh, further afield, and it occurred to me, too, that um, actually getting to Wrangell was one thing, but seeing my bird on Wrangell was totally another. Um, apparently, grey plover on Wrangell are very, very shy, perhaps to do with the density of foxes there. And so 200 metres, 300 metres away from you, they, they will leave the nest and they will um, disappear. Oh, so you don't want them to do that, getting, do you? Getting, yes. getting close to them is hard. Right. And, yeah. But to my good fortune, I found um, a Hawaiian biologist, Phil Brunner, who with his wife, Andrea, had been going up to a study site near Nome, Alaska, for decades and they had probably been studying this bird on its nest longer than anyone. And so I contacted Phil and Phil said, sure, come on up. So I went to Nome. Um, I managed to be there just shortly before he arrived. Um, and I went out to uh, a place called Woolly Lagoon. Uh, there, leading out of Nome, there are three roads. None of them connect with anything else in Alaska. There are just three roads that stutter out at villages at the end. It's a long way out on the tundra. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic place um, to, to be in wilderness, particularly for someone like me who comes from Tasmania. Um, I felt so at home. Woolly Lagoon is uh, at the mile 40 mark. Uh, you turn off to go down to Woolly Lagoon. So uh, we turned off, went down to Woolly Lagoon. We've got a flat tundra leading down towards the lagoon in the distance. Behind us, we've got Singatuk, which is the weathermaker mountain of that area, the rampart of the Kigluyak Range. And so that setting, that wide open setting, beautiful wide open setting. So we began to search for Grey plover and Phil, over time, has developed this wonderful method of um, of refinding nest sites so that he can on on the featureless tundra, so that he can um, continue to study the same birds again and again and again to find out how often they return and all those sorts of things. And he's got this system of rocks, you know, he nobody else would recognise them. They're just rocks, you know, but he places a rock just so. And so we went down. Uh, the, the, the track in the four-wheel drive, which is a really handy hide that doesn't alarm the birds too much. You're, you're hidden inside the four-wheel drive going down a track. Uh, and we stopped um, and um, Phil... Um, 
he he had the measure of me by then. He knew that I was a fairly serious person and had gone to a lot of lengths by then. So he was prepared to invite me to walk up to the nest. Uh, so I got out of the car uh, and he said to me, there's one thing you have to remember. You, well, there's two things. You have to keep sight of the nest. Don't lose sight of it. You won't find it again. And the other thing is, don't step on any egg anywhere. So I'm walking through the tundra. I have to cross a little creek. But just before I cross the creek, I noticed that there's slightly larger rock next to where the nest had been. The, the female plover has walked away from the nest by now. She's left it. Um, he's confident, Phil is confident the bird will come back. So we're not going to lose those eggs. And so um, I see the rock. I step over the creek. I see the rock. I take a few steps and it's there in front of me. You know, the beginning of all these global hopes Three, three little eggs, about the size of a bantam eggs, camouflaged. They're sitting there waiting for a fourth to come in to complete the clutch. And they just are oh, um, absolutely my heart filled. I, I just stood there. I uh, bowed my head to hold the memory, uh, listened to the silence of the tundra around me, um, and I walked away. Yeah. Um, just uh, such a wonderful opportunity that I had. Um, things like that I mean, you know, I mean, I had a rare opportunity among people. You've got to be able to communicate those sorts of things more widely. We need to understand natural beauty like that. Do you think you understand what it's like to live in a moment better now from after your prognosis? Say again, I didn't catch do you. you. Think, do you think it's, you understand better how, how to live in that in a, in a single moment? Oh yes, now. Oh yes, I think that you know practically everybody who gets these sorts of um, jolts in life learns to uh, learns the basics, relearns the basics. You know, treasure each day, um, make make the most of it, love people, don't sweat the small stuff, just get on with what's important. Yeah. Mm. The story begins with you sort of observing an, uh, an experiment, I suppose, of a kind, uh, observing a scientific study. And like you say, then you became the subject yes. of a scientific study. Mm. How very odd all that is. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, I certainly felt that when I, when I was um, in, the, in the midst of it. I felt that I was, uh, um, had a special place. I needed to do the book. I needed to finish it. And I had been given special opportunities. You flew the journey. You became a plover. <laughs> you're a plover. You are. You're a plover. I mean, you're, you're, you, you, you went on the journey. You went back and forward. I'm a survivor. Like them. You know, plovers have been around. There was a, the first, uh, the second oldest bird, the only one to have a continued, continued lineage through time, 130 million years old, was a plover-like bird. What became of those two birds, CYA and CYB? Do we know, were they followed after they'd landed on Wrangell Island? Do we know what happened to them? I'll tell you about CYA. I'm not going to tell you about CYB because I think readers need to be able to hold that sort of thing for themselves. CYA... She um, very likely um, um, successfully raised a clutch. She spent a long time on Wrangell, much longer than usual for females. Um, she spent a lot of time at the nest. Um, and when she left it to fly away briefly, she flew back. Almost you think, well, she's checking on the chicks, make sure they're okay. Then she flew, instead of going south now, she flew west to what are called the New Siberian Islands, um, about a thousand kilometres away. And that is typically where many Australian shorebirds will go at one stage or other to feed up. They get a, a feast on crane flies. As you can imagine, the insect life on the tundra is pretty hectic. 
And um, so she fed up there. Um, but when she left the New Siberians to return south, she um, had a bit of a wavering course. Um, the satellite track shows a bit of a wavering course. And she landed near a tundra pond where she first when she which is where she landed when she first came up same tundra pond on the Siberian coast and um and the signal stopped so you don't know you don't know whether um she was predated or you don't know you fear that she was entangled um in the satellite tag finally and that it cost her a life um you don't know whether the satellite tag dropped off her and she flies to this day. She's never been seen again. Her leg flag CYA has never been seen again. And so that's all we can surmise about her. CYB, yeah, she went further. This is one of the most amazing stories I think I've ever uh, heard on this program. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, head to abc.net.au slash conversations. my conversation with Andrew Darby from last year. Andrew was the author of Flight Lines, Across the Globe on a Journey with the Astonishing Ultramarathon Birds. Andrew's been in touch to tell us that shortly after his program went to air, he hit a bit of a pothole and he's back getting treatment. But thanks to that treatment, he's back on track, he says, and doing very well. And he says he's lucky to be treated in the Australian health system. If you or someone close to you needs information or support, the Cancer Council has a support line. It's available 9 to 5, Monday to Friday on 13 11 20. That's 13 11 20. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.